Welcome to the Kingdomers podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today for episode, we have a conversation with Brian Zahn, senior pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. Scott, this is a, a fantastic conversation that we just recorded with Brian, and uh, I am just sure that our listeners are going to eat up every second of this. Any highlights from this that, man, you really look forward for our listeners to hear? Yeah, um, you know, I think that um, a lot of pastors are yearning for something deeper, something more. Uh, a lot of leaders in churches, parents are dissatisfied with the way Christianity exists. It just seems to be a, a roller coaster uh, or they're on some kind of conveyor belt and they just have to keep running faster and faster. And they, and they want, they know that the Christian faith is deeper than that. Well, Brian, Brian Zond has been on this journey and Brian Zond took some decisive steps that opened up and he calls it knocking open the doors of his mind. Uh, that opened him up to uh, a deeper, a more peaceful, and a richer appreciation for Jesus and the Christian faith and how to live as a Christian. And it didn't matter to him uh, whether everybody else wanted to go along. He lost members in his church, but he was confident that he was moving faithfully on the journey, uh, and and I'm convinced that he was. So I, I love his story. And I'm hoping everybody will pay attention to Brian Zond as they go forward. Yeah, powerful story here. Hope you enjoy our conversation with Brian. Hey, Brian, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. Good to be here. Brian, uh, I get invited to speak to churches around the United States. I always consider it a privilege. Sometimes it's a burden. Sometimes it is to a situation where I feel... Why in the world did I get invited here? Um, and one time I got this invitation from Brian to come speak to a group of pastors. Well, I love to get to speak to pastors because uh, because I feel like that's I, I'm not a pastor, but I like to talk to pastors. I'm very committed to ministry in the church. And so Brian invites me. I, I wasn't sure who Brian was. So, of course, I did what everybody else does. I Googled and dug around to figure out what I could find. And um, we had this wonderful event. Uh, I, and I, I don't think I've ever had th- this sort of experience where I couldn't wait till I was done so that I could hear Brian talk about what I had said. <laughs> and, and he had all kinds of interesting observations and he took what I was taking in different directions and he's far more eloquent than I am. Uh, but I've paid attention to Brian's story. Uh, many of us have, and he's becoming an increasingly important voice in leadership and ministry of um, independent thinking, of returning to our roots. And whenever I think of Brian Zond, uh, I have to tell you the words that come to my mind are, uh, it, he is a journey into faithfulness and change. Now, some people equate faithfulness with with rigorous, legalistic traditionalism that doesn't change. And the next thing you know, we'll have incense in our churches so that we can feel like we're 
in the first century or even deeper. But Brian is a person that, as I've listened to, is a person of faithfulness and change. And in his new book called Water to Wine, Some of My Story, uh, you know, postmoderns can hear the words some of my story <laughs> and uh, chuckle and think that's pretty clever. Uh, who will ever know any of our full stories? But but Brian, uh, you talk in this book about the year 2004. Could you tell us a little bit about the significance of 2004 for your life? Sure. And for the significance of 2004 to be appreciated, I have to back up and sort of let you know what leads up to that. Um, my story basically is that I am a product of the Jesus movement of the 70s. Uh, I'm 57 now, so that'll just keep people from having to try to figure out how old I am. And I encountered Jesus in a very powerful, dramatic way when I was 15 in 1974. And I just overnight went from being the high school, long-haired, Led Zeppelin freak to being the Jesus freak, and that's what they called us back then. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a coffee house ministry that was basically a music venue, uh, a Christian music venue, but, but we also did some teaching there. And then by the time I was 22, it, it had sort of just morphed into a church. I mean, you know, nowadays they launch churches and plant churches and all of that, and it's very intentional. Ours just sort of accidentally <laughs> happened, and uh, I became the pastor. But I'd really been doing the work of a pastor before that, so I tell people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult, <laughs> and that's the <laughs> truth. Now, I don't recommend this model. This is not a model at all. This is an accident that happened, um, but I became a pastor. And our church stayed relatively small for the first six or seven years, and then, and then it took off. And now we're almost into the 90s, beginning about 1989-90, our church started growing. And here's what happened, Scott. Uh, I encountered Jesus in the Jesus movement. That funneled me into the charismatic renewal, which was fine, which was good, until it wasn't. Uh, that sort of <laughs> then funneled me into word of faith. That funneled me a little bit into religious right and church growth and just all of those sorts of things. Uh, we had tremendous success in the way that Americans like to measure success, numbers and money and that sort of thing. Uh, but by the time I was 45, okay, now we're at 2004, I just sort of woke up and thought, wait a minute, this isn't who I am. How did I arrive here? It's like I got on a wrong bus somewhere. <laughs> and, and here I was, a word of faith, um, religious right, church growth guy, and I was profoundly discontent. The discontent had really begun about the year 2000, but I wasn't saying anything about it. And what I did to deal with my discontent, and it wasn't a discontent with Jesus or anything like that, but I just felt like the... The faith that I knew, the Christian expression that I was a part of, felt too thin, too weak, too watery. It wasn't living up to what had first fascinated me about Jesus. And so in an effort to, uh, you know, just, I don't know, find something of substance, I returned to some first loves. That is to good literature, classic literature. I began reading a lot of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Hemingway and Steinbeck and that sort of thing, and reading philosophy. 
Okay, uh, which, but now, all right, now I, I want to interrupt just a bit because, right? Brian, you're being humble because this story um, is a little, uh, is a little, there's a little more here that I think our listeners need to hear because they won't know as much about you as I do. And that is, uh, you, you said earlier that your church, you know, you had achieved things that churches typically equate with success. Right. Tell us some of those things. Well, I mean, at one point we were recognized as one of the 20 fastest growing churches in America, to which I say, ta-da, <laughs> you know, there you go. How about that? Yeah. In, a, in a city of 70,000 people, too. So we're not in yeah. a, you know, we're in a small city. Uh, so, yeah, we had all of that, all of the big numbers and, and the acclaim that comes with that and the opportunities to travel and speak. Uh, I used to get invited to lots of church growth uh, seminars, conventions, meetings. I don't get invited to those anymore. <laughs> well, Brian, how many times were you speaking away from your church a year? Well, I know one year it was like 100. Yeah. Uh, so a lot. Uh, and, I, and I think it would be fair to say that your church, you and your church, were becoming sort of a what you know, a, sort of a marquee place, uh, something people wanted to imitate. Yeah, this is true. You you were uh, you were becoming in, in that sense. Uh, for some people, you were a bit of a celebrity. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, let's say yeah. like C list celebrity. <laughs> okay. You know? All right. So if you uh, in you know I think. I think this needs to be said because there are many pastors who are searching for that kind of celebrity. Mm -hmm. uh, leaders uh, in churches who want their church to arrive, and they think arrival means 5,000 people, uh, multi-staff, multi-location. So, so success for many people, I think you're right, is measured by money. It is measured by numbers. It is measured by facilities. It is measured by uh, celebrity status in right. being given marquee names at major events. And and you got there. And I know I, I've been around you enough to know you don't want to talk about that. But I think that's, uh, that's something that uh, is a part of your past that that illustrates and enhances what happened then when you decided to return to your first love of literature and yeah, philosophy and that, theology? That's true enough, Scott. I, I find some of that embarrassing, some of that past. I mean, sometimes I'll come across, you know, just some memento from that period of time, and I do cringe. But yeah, I was a part of that world, that, that kind of word of faith, prosperity gospel, big time world. I, and I, and I want to add this little caveat. I always... Uh, I don't think I, I, I didn't represent the most egregious over the top yeah. expressions of the prosperity yeah. gospel. I always had a, a healthy suspicion of that, but still I was associated with that world yeah. and that yeah. that's the circles I ran in. Yeah. But I began to be discontent around the time I turned 40. And so I'm <laughs> reading Steinbeck and Hemingway and Tolstoy and all of that sort of stuff and reading philosophy, uh, which I just always had a love for. But the thing, the reason I was reading that, other than, you know, that's a worthy endeavor, I suppose. But, Scott, I was shockingly, I was stunningly, embarrassingly ignorant of what I call the good stuff. Mm. I just didn't know. I mean, what I knew were these little, you know, thin paperbacks 
of celebrity charismatic preachers. I'd yeah. given up reading those because I didn't need to read them. I already knew what they said. Just, you know, tell me what the title is. Let me look at the back of the book and I'll tell you what's in the middle. I mean, I knew all of that stuff. And so I, and then, and then eventually I began reading some of the church fathers. I thought, well, I've, I've got to get back to some roots here. But by 2004, it really reached a crisis point. And I thought, well, I've got to make a decision. Either I'm going to find some way to discover a deeper, more robust faith, or I'm just going to have to kind of say, well, I guess this is really what Christianity is, and just sort of coast and take it easy and maybe enjoy life more by taking more vacations or something. I didn't know what else I was going to do. But I began the first three weeks of this sounds crazy, and I don't recommend this to anybody. In fact, everybody listening, do not do this. But I began 2004 on this radical fast. Um, I didn't eat anything for the first three weeks, actually 22 days. I got down to 130 pounds. All I did during that time was pray, preach when I was supposed to preach, and, uh, and sleep at night. That was it. That's all I did. I didn't do anything else. I, I drove back and forth. I found out you can drive from my house to the church for three weeks on a tank of gas because I didn't get a, I didn't go to the gas station. I didn't do anything, and I was just simply I don't know. I was I was trying to communicate that I really wanted something to happen in my life, and eventually things did happen. And and, and it's. I'll tell this story, and this again could sound a little too supernatural, mystic, whatever. But it's what happened. Uh, I I finally, I just I just thought, well, maybe 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 I need to be reading in a different direction. And I prayed, and I said, God, show me what to read. And I have a lot of books, and but I didn't have any of the right books. But I I had a lot of books, and I I just I, I don't know, and and didn't sense anything, didn't know what to do, and I went downstairs and kind of slumped into a chair. And right then, my wife Perry walked in. She had no idea what I'd prayed. She walked right up to me and she said, "Here, I think you should read this book." Hmm. <laughs> it was, you know, it'd been like two minutes. I'd prayed, "Lord, show me what to read." And then I went downstairs, and Perry walks up and says, "Here, I think you should read this book." Well, it was Dallas Willard's *The Divine Conspiracy*. She hadn't read it. I didn't know who Dallas Willard was. To this day, we don't know exactly how the book got on our house, but somehow it did. Hmm. And I remember I, I took that book. Uh, I didn't start reading right then. The next day I was on a plane somewhere, and I opened that book up, and it was like someone kicked open a door hmm. in my mind. And I just thought, where have you been all my life? And one thing very quickly led to another. Not that there's necessarily a direct connection, but... You know, this leads to, uh, I'm reading N.T. Wright, I'm reading Walter Brueggemann, I'm reading Stanley Hauerwas, I'm reading Carl Barth, I'm reading Scott McKnight, I'm reading Miroslav Volf. Uh, and, I, and when I say I read these, as I look back on 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, especially that period of time, just the sheer volume of serious theological works that I read is actually astounding. I think, how did I read that much? But what I would do is I would come home at night, five or six, and I would read till midnight every night. I did that every night, and no one made me do it. I couldn't help myself. It was like I had struck gold, and I couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. I thought, where have you been all my life? And you know, over Brian, I was in your office <clears throat> one time, uh, and you walked over to a set of books and you touched them affectionately and you said you read them cover to cover the anti-nicene and post-nicene fathers yeah 
I mean, that was a baptism by fire into the great depths of the church, huh? Yeah, it was. And, and, and really where I started, what first did, I mean, I began reading some of the church fathers, but then, uh, what's his name? Uh, the spirit of early Christian thought, just a little single. Robert bump. Wilkin. Yeah, Robin. That that really wet my appetite, and that's mm. what that was my introduction into reading the Church Fathers as prime sources. And, but of course, what happens, Scott? You start doing that. If you go from and and, and water to wine, I mentioned this, and not everybody will get that. But for the few people out there that get this line, they'll they'll appreciate it. I'm pretty sure we're the only church to have hosted both. Jesse Duplantis and Walter Brueggemann. <laughs> so, so, you know, that yeah. gives you an idea of the kind of transition we went through. And well, Go ahead, yeah. Well, I mean, and, it, and, it's, and I can tell funny stories and we can laugh, but there's also a very deep, very deep, painful side to this story. And that is, as I began to migrate away from what I eventually would identify as American pop Christianity, or less kindly, easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity, into a more robust faith. And especially as I began then to critique uh, American civil religion and how the religious right had, had in fact simply become the de facto religious wing of the Republican Party and was captured by nationalism. As I began to critique those sorts of things, consumerism, nationalism, within the church, well, um, that creates a powerful cognitive dissonance within a congregation, and they have to decide, is this really what I, did I sign up for this? Mm-hmm. And we lost, you know, a couple of thousand people. And remember, I said I'm in a town of 70,000 people, and if you lose a couple of thousand people, what does that mean? It means when I go to the grocery store, I see ex-church members. Mm-hmm. And if I do it just right, I can see them on aisle one, two, three, all the way to aisle 10. <laughs> and... You know, it can be, I mean, these are people, some of them are people that we've known for 20 years and loved and uh, yeah. baptized and married their kids and all those yeah. sorts of things. And uh, that sort of pain is very real. And and uh, we still feel it. Now, I, I hasten to add, I have no regrets. I would do it all over again. Uh, and, and I don't think I could have done it any better. I mean, you know, you mm. say, well, did you move too fast? Well, I don't know. I, I think I took it as slow as I could, but I had to eventually move somewhere else. I mean, you can't unknow what you know and be true to yourself. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm, I'm very happy where Word of Life Church is today. I, I, I have never been more excited about being a Christian and preaching the gospel and writing and teaching and speaking. And the interesting thing is I get, as, I get more invitations now than I ever did. But there's huh. diverse invitations. I mm-hmm. get invited to speak in Methodist churches or Catholic. Catholics invite me to speak. What the heck? I mean, how yeah. did that happen? Uh, but I love that. And Brian, I, uh, you know, when, when someone makes a journey uh, or takes a journey like you have taken, where you move from a very strong tradition or, mm-hmm. you know, call it what you want, and uh, move in a significantly different into a different strong tradition as you've moved from the uh, sort of prosperity gospel into the great tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, not giving yourself labels. You're not charismatic. You're not evangelical. You're not mainline. You're exploring uh, yeah. where where to be faithful to Christ. Uh, where to be faithful to the gospel. Where to be faithful to the church's great tradition and what you've learned. 
you know, this this impacted your church. I mean, the the numbers dropped off. Yeah. Uh, and so-called measures of success shifted. Uh, I wonder how this impacted both your family, and uh, then a second one would be how did this impact the substance of your sermons? Those are great questions, uh, and I uh, I'm glad you asked them. Uh, family. Well, my wife Perry. Uh, and this is this was a real saving grace. She was with me every step of the way. And by that, I don't mean she's just sort of blindly tagging along behind me, whatever you say, dear. But she, too, was on her own spiritual journey and was reading and discovering. And, and so we walked it together, uh, not not with her following after me, but mm. she, but side by side. And, and she's also you know, during this time, growing and making the same discoveries. And there was never any tension between us. And that was a tremendous grace. I I think, you know, if that hadn't been the case, it might have been very difficult. But that was the case. Uh, I have three sons, three adult sons now. I think one son was, well, I know one son was still at home during this time. Uh, But during the early days of that time, my two older sons who were married, uh, were both on staff. One still is, and another one is is no longer on staff with us, but um, he lives here in town. In fact, the two brothers live across the street from each other, and I have five grandchildren from those two sons, and they, anyway, that's off the subject here. But uh, <laughs> they were, the they were thrilled. They were thrilled. Wow. And at one point, because I, I remember at one point, because they could tell that I was a little bit down because, you know, another wave of people leaving. And, and my oldest son came to me and he said, Dad, he said, I know that this has been hard, but I love our church. And to be really honest, I don't know if we could have stayed if you hadn't made those changes. Mm. And we had the phenomenon, Scott, of of people, you know, my age or maybe a little older in their 60s or whatever, leave Word of Life Church and their adult children remain. Mm. I thought, hmm, that says a lot. Now, the only problem is their kids don't have any money. (laughs) 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 But but really, I think, well, that says a lot, doesn't it? And the other thing thing that doesn't, um, you didn't ask this question, but I want to mention this. Another thing that helped me through that difficult time was I really feel like the Lord sent me two friends. And you know who they are. People, Most people won't know them, but Brad Jerzak yep. and Joe Beach. Yep. Brad is a theologian in Canada, and Joe Beach is a pastor in Denver. And I, I don't think I could, if I had to go through all that alone, that would have mm. been too much. But these two men came into my life and we became very close friends. I, you know, I communicate with these people nearly every day, you know, text, message, or email or something. What are you reading? And I, I had to have that kind of friendship. That's why I dedicated my book, Beauty Will Save the World, to Joe and Brad. So anyway, um, the family thing, it's been great. And one of the ways I think about my role as a pastor and a leader now is I pray this prayer every day. I say, God, help me to help make Christianity possible for my grandchildren and mm. their generation. So I have, I, have, I have five grandchildren, ages five and under, and they are sort of my, my touchstone. I think, okay, 
is what I'm doing going to help make Christianity possible for them? Because I understand that the tsunami of secularism is continuing to wash across uh, Western civilization. It's been more pronounced in Europe, but it's also hitting North America. And I think, okay, um, 20 years from now, I'm going to have at least five grandchildren that are between the ages of 25 and 20. Mm-hmm. What's it going to take for me to help contribute to them wanting to be a part of a church, be a practicing, believing Christian 20 years from now? And so that sort of frames how I want to approach doing ministry. And that and, and it won't seem strange to you, but some, some of our hearers, it may, that has directly led me into the great tradition, mm-hmm. into uh, embracing a, a much more rooted faith. Right. Well, Brian, I could listen to some of these stories forever. Uh, I'd, I'd like to, I think, uh, because a lot of our listeners uh, are connected to churches or leaders, preachers, teachers, I wonder if you could just give us a few minutes on how your journey into faithfulness and change has impacted uh, the substance of your sermons. What, what do you do now that you never did before? Well, the actually, how I go about writing a sermon doesn't change. What has changed, Scott, is that I have, I have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours reading some of our best contributions on how we think about and talk about the God who is revealed in Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, here, here, if I do have a gift, I think it might be this. I have learned how to graze in the fields of serious academic theology and then translate it for truck drivers and for people that are readers at Walmart. You are good at that. And and because, honestly, um, what good does it do? I mean, I... I mean, what, what Walter Bergman's doing, what you're doing, Scott, what Miroslav Volf is doing, what N.T. Wright is doing, if it doesn't ultimately get down to the pew level, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I can, I can read Karl Barth's works. I haven't read all of Dogmatics, but I'm working on it. And I think it's a tremendous gift to the church. But, I mean... That's the point. It needs to be a gift to the church, not just a mm-hmm. gift to a few academics. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, and I'm, I don't. I, I may not spend a lot of time uh, if I'm writing. I will. I will let a person know where I'm getting this from. Mm-hmm. But if I'm preaching on Sunday morning, I may not spend a lot of time telling this, telling people that I got this from Gerhard Lofink, you know, a, a yeah, Catholic yeah. German theologian. Yeah. Because they don't, they would find that off-putting. It might appear arrogant, and so I guess what I'm sum up what I'm saying I'm what is is different is I'm trying to be conversant in the best aspects of our conversation within the long history of Christian theology, but then translate it into a way that the average person coming to church that's going to hear a thirty-minute sermon that they can actually benefit from this and get this and work this into their life. But I, I would think, I would say my sermons are of a theological content. That's what people tell me. And I've discovered that if you make it accessible, the average Christian's very interested 
in having some substantive, robust theology. So my sermons are less prescriptive. They are not what you would call practical. I mean, is the Trinity practical? <laughs> the, the Trinity is true. That's what it is. It's, mm-hmm. I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to preach sermons on how to necessarily have a better life, how to raise your kids. I mean, there, there's a place for that. Have seminars, have workshops, have you know a weekend study on that. But that isn't what I'm doing. And so I would say that what has changed is my sermons are theological in their foundation. Brian, I'd be curious. You know, I find it fascinating. So much of the crux of these major changes in your life was the discontent that you feel. And I wonder if you have any advice for our listeners who might just be at a similar place in their ministry where they feel discontent and they're not sure where it's coming from, you know, where it's leading them to. And from your journey, I wonder if you have any words of advice for them. You know, quite honestly, without exaggeration, I would say I get maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to think here, probably about, I'm contacted probably five times a week by some pastor somewhere. I mean, I've already been contacted this morning by, you know, they'll find me on Facebook or Twitter or somehow, and they'll, they'll find a way to contact me. And these are pastors out there that are going through this very thing that I'm describing. And the reason they reach out to me is my journey has been somewhat public, and people are aware of that, and they think maybe I might understand what they're going through. So I'm talking to these people constantly, which anecdotally leads me to believe that there is a far larger group of pastors who are feeling this discontent and are looking for something more substantive. So the first thing I want to say is you're not alone. There good, are good. far more than you think, uh, but it's a little bit hard for us to, you know, define one another at this point, but maybe that'll change. I don't know. I, I think, I think, I don't know what, I don't have anything brilliant to say other than you're going to have to start reading a little better mm-hmm. and you're going to have to start paying attention to what has been somewhat vetted as our, our, best contributions to the conversation of Christian theology and begin to be immersed in that, and then find some friends you can talk to. Now, in my circumstance, uh, whereas Word of Life Church, you know, we've been completely independent, non-denominational. I don't endorse that. I don't think that's the way to go, but it's my story. It's, I'm just playing the cards that were dealt me. This is how my life played out. Uh, in another lifetime, I could imagine myself belonging to any of the major traditions of Christian faith. As it is, I'm, I'm sort of on my own. But, but the advantage that did give me was I was able to make changes and not be fired. <laughs> now, I could, lose, I, could, I could lose members, but I wasn't going to be fired. Yeah. And uh, I understand that not every pastor has that luxury. They're not necessarily in that position, and that creates a different sort of pressure for them. Mm-hmm. How forthcoming do they become? As they begin to move away from consumerism or perhaps nationalism, those tend to be the big things, uh, how much risk are they willing to take? And that's something that each pastor is going to have to decide on their own. But know that there, there are more and more pastors out there every day who are saying, I really reached the end of the line of American pop Christianity. I want something better. The resources are there. Begin to pay attention. Begin to read. Look around. You'll find somebody else in your city that's going through the same thing. Start having coffee with them on Thursday mornings or something. That sort of thing. 
Well, this is good, Brian. And I want to commend to those who are listening today Brian's books, but his most recent one that tells far more of his story and uh, can be very, uh, I, can, I think it can be devotional, it can be challenging, and it can be paradigm shifting. It's called Water to Wine, Some of My Story by Brian Zond. And that is Z-A-H-N-D with that D at the end. So. Mm-hmm. Brian, thanks so much uh, for being with us. Well, thank you, Scott. I had a good time. I really enjoyed this. Well, thank you. Well, wow, that was such a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed all of the the different parts of it. Um, In the descriptions, I've included some links to um, Brian's books, as well as how to interact and engage with him on social media. Uh, We hope you take the the chance to do that and to continue enjoying our conversations. Make sure you take a chance to subscribe so you get to continue to listen to our conversation about how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Mm -hmm.